Hello again, everybody. I'm Roger Hoover. Glad to welcome you to Broadcaster Hour. I'm with you today from South Carolina. We've got Kyle Crooks over there in the Sunshine State. Same could be said for the man in the middle of our screen, Rich Hollenberg, and joins us now from his home. And Rich, of course, of ESPN and the Tampa Bay Rays. How's everything going for you? Excellent, fellas. Good to be uh, talking sportscasting with both of you. And, and Rich, uh, we have a bond. You don't know it, but I'm a Jersey guy. And you're a Jersey guy. I, I grew up in northern New Jersey, a small town, Bequanic. It, it's where Derek Jeter was born. So where where were you in Jersey growing up? I know you went to Syracuse, but wh- where do your Jersey roots start? My Jersey roots uh, take me all the way back to Bergen County, New Jersey. The I used to tell people it was the armpit of the armpit. So <laughs> people who like to hate on New Jersey say, oh, it's the armpit of America. I was up in the northeast corner of New Jersey, literally like one of the last towns before you get to the George Washington Bridge. So I was 20 miles as the crow flies from Yankee Stadium. Uh, Of course, it took me an hour to get there when I was growing up with the traffic and everything. But um, I grew up uh, a New York sports fan, Knicks, Yankees, Rangers, Giants, because uh, I was a Jersey guy. And... Kyle, I don't, I don't know if you can see it, so I'll get it we for you. It. Bruce. That's, that's my, uh, my acknowledgement to New Jersey and to the boss. This is going to be – basically, you guys are getting the first look at what my home set is going to look like during ESPN basketball this year because I'm guessing that almost all of my games are going to be done right here in my living room. So let's let's take the fans uh, inside then your studio. Uh, ESPN sends this whole kit, uh, I would assume, of, of the camera and everything you have. Do you, I assume you have to put it all together? And is it a hard thing to do? What does it look like in there? You want to see it? Yeah, let's yeah, let's take. Let's go. <laughs> okay, it's a little different because I had to stack some books on top of my MacBook so you guys could see me well enough. But uh, let's see if I'm smart enough to figure this out and flip the camera around for you. Uh, I might not be. Let me see. Well, you know what? I'll just turn it around this way so you can see it. All right. So what you're looking at is a big 36-inch monitor. You see that? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so they sent me that. They sent me right above that on the tripod is a remote-controlled camera. There's the light that's going to make me look all pretty. And they send along a MacBook Pro, and then they send along what's called a Dante. And this Dante is our com box, which you guys obviously know. Usually you have two buttons. You have a mm-hmm. cough button and a talkback button. But now we are basically our own audio engineer. So one button will be able to talk to our, our fellow announcer, uh, my analyst. One button I'll be able to talk to anyone else who's on the Zoom call. For instance, my stats guy is going to be on a Zoom call just like we are. I'll be able to talk to my producer with this button and then this is kind of the uh you know in case of emergency break glass button hopefully i'll never have to press the help button number seven (laughs) but it's there just in case uh and yeah we had to set it up uh they send you know i i call it the mission impossible box they send it it's in this big yellow case and it's all sealed up and you open it up and you've got all this electronics but ESPN has done a wonderful job, and they've had some practice because they started with baseball back in March uh, when everything shut down. But uh, they basically have laminated sheets where they walk you through 
what plug to put in what box and where to put it and so on and so forth. And you get on just like you do with everybody else. You get on a Zoom call and took about two hours to kind of fax out what we did with Bristol. And now I'm ready to roll. And literally, I am awaiting uh, December 11th is going to be my first game that I'm announcing from home, Kansas versus Omaha from, it's crazy to say, an empty Fog Allen Fieldhouse. One of the best places in college basketball, and it's been such a journey ever since the last basketball game to what's coming up for you for that broadcast. Just what can you tell us about the summer you had and how excited you are to get back to sportscasting full-time? Well, it, it was tough because, uh, first of all, the rug was pulled out from under me just like it was everybody who's in our industry and other industries. Um, so I was about to do something that I felt at that point was the pinnacle of my college basketball broadcasting career. So I got tapped to call the Big 12 tournament, which was thrilling for me. But outside or in addition to calling the Big 12 tournament, I was going to be hosting the halftimes in between games on ESPN for the semifinals and the finals. Bob Wischusen was going to be there calling the finals with Fran Fraschilla. I was calling the first couple of rounds with Chris Spatola. And then Chris and I were going to stick around and do all the half times and all the in-between games. So a lot of faces just believe it was my fourth year of covering the Big 12. So I was thrilled, and we did the first-round games, a doubleheader, which both games were terrific. Uh, Iowa State, Oklahoma State, and Oklahoma State won in the closing moments. And then TCU versus Kansas State, which on paper, especially last year, was kind of a dog of a game. Two teams that didn't really play that well during the regular season, but turned out to be another really close contest that Kansas State uh, came back and won. And lo and behold, unbeknownst to me or anybody else, that was the last college basketball game in its entirety played in the season. Woke up the next morning, we're in Kansas City, I'm walking around the Power and Light District, not knowing what is going on. As a matter of fact, guys, uh, you probably have heard stories from other broadcasters in similar situations. We were in the midst of that doubleheader that I was just telling you about, and there was an announcement. It was a sellout crowd inside the Sprint Center, phenomenal atmosphere. And there was an announcement made over the PA system that the following day's games, there were not going to be fans allowed. And the chorus of boos that <laughs> rang down from all those people who have traveled from all over the Big 12 uh, universities and, and small towns to get to Kansas City to watch good basketball, uh, it was something I will, I will never forget. So I was a little crestfallen at the time. And then, obviously, I covered the Tampa Bay Rays during baseball season. So I said, well, at least we have baseball. And then we didn't have baseball. Uh, fortunately, we did a 60 game season. I called all of my games and did all of my pre and post game shows from Tropicana field when the team was there. And when the team wasn't there, that was our little bubble was Tropicana field. And then very fortunately I got an extra 20 games because the Rays not only made the playoffs, but they made the world series and played literally 22 of a, or 20, I believe of a possible 22 games. If it had gone to, a seven-game World Series, 
they would have they would have played uh, the full complement of playoff games. So that was obviously a, a fun ride, regardless of the situation and the scenario that we found ourselves in. Sticking with broadcasting during the pandemic, just once again, uh, you mentioned the ride with the Rays that you got to have this season, and you mentioned even calling some games. Uh, what was it like just trying to get used to calling games off a monitor and kind of the new way to navigate a major league clubhouse is now on Zoom as opposed to working your sources like you typically would? Yeah, Roger, it was not easy, and it was not nearly as fun as what you're used to doing. The one thing that I've learned, just to kind of take it to maybe a little bit more of a treetops level, the one thing that I've learned is that you have to be grateful for what you have, because when it gets taken away is when you realize how much you miss it. So the one thing I've learned uh, to take as a positive from all of this is that I am so grateful for what I do and that I get paid to do what I do because it's not work. I don't get paid to call games. I get paid to travel. That's that's really the tough part of it. So the travel was taken away. And yet you don't have the ambiance, the fans, all of the things that you really realize that you love so much and that makes it the sport that you love covering. Um, but with all that said, I mean, the difficulties if you're a professional, I think you overcome them. And I had a little bit of an experience calling games remotely because ESPN's been doing it for a handful of years already. And so I did inside the walls of ESPN, we call it Remy's, remote integration. And so I would be in Bristol calling a basketball game in New Mexico. I would be in Charlotte calling a game in Virginia. I would be in Orlando calling a game in California. So I had some experience to that. The difference now is going to be that I am calling, I showed you that 36 inch monitor. Everything is basically a gigantic zoom call. So I don't have all of the cameras in front of me. When you do these Remy's, that's what you have. You have multiple monitors in a studio setting and you're looking at every single camera angle that is available to you at that game. Usually on average, it's four cameras for a basketball game, sometimes five. The bigger games will have six, maybe seven. But whatever the number is, you have those the, the purview of all of those monitors. We won't have that this year. And uh, that's going to be the biggest challenge in your house, watching the game on TV, and you're announcing it to the nation at the same time. And it's funny because things come full circle. My my college roommates at Syracuse make fun of me still to this day because my parents got me a VCR camcorder when I was in college so I could do exactly what I'm doing now <laughs> this coming basketball. Call games from a living room into a camera and that now it's just going out to whoever's watching that game instead of just my roommates at Syracuse making fun of me for it. Well, you mentioned your Syracuse roots, and I want to go back to the New Jersey question I asked you, because a big reason of why I wanted to do this was growing up listening to Sports Talk Radio and listening to Mike and the Mad Dog and those guys, and then eventually, as I got older, transitioning to wanting to do specifically play-by-play. Did you grow up listening to Marv Albert, emulating him, and maybe listening to a lot of the Sports Talk Radio that was on the air at that point in time? Because... I mean, early 90s and throughout the 90s, that's when FAN really started to become what it is now. 
Yeah. Uh, first of all, Kyle, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention how much I love the fact that you wear a headset for broadcaster. <laughs> hour. I just think that's freaking dynamite. I, I think that is so this keeping. Is what you gotta do right. Yeah. yeah. I just yeah. got the stick it, mic here. That's <laughs> I love that. Uh, but getting back to your point, uh, yeah, growing up in Rivervale, go- growing up in New Jersey, the two names that resonated with me and probably so many other people, but especially me being from there, was Marv Albert and Bob Costas. Uh, on the local level, it was Marv. And obviously, we were lucky growing up at that time because we got Marv all the time, whether it was for Knicks games or Rangers games. But... The, the country had Marv also. He was doing boxing on NBC Sports on Saturdays. He was doing all these sorts of things. So he had that national reputation for sure. But he was still our guy. He was a New York guy. So Marv was and is the best of the best. When I realized that uh, I, I wasn't truly sure what I wanted to do in sportscasting, but that I wanted to just be a sportscaster... And it was at a very early age. I mean, I was like 10 years old when I decided this. Um, Bob Costas was the gold standard for me. And so going to Syracuse was a no-brainer. It was a fait accompli. As long as I could get in, I knew that's where I was going. And having those two especially uh, as the voices, the soundtrack, if you will, of my sports fandom growing up did nothing but help push me in that direction to want to be who they were and do what they do. Um, never had the, the good fortune to meet or spend any time with Marv, but I have with Bob and I don't count him as a friend, but now the fact that we travel in somewhat similar circles, but in Syracuse, we call it the new house mafia mm-hmm. and everybody truly looks out for one another. And it is, The one enduring thing that I take with me every day as a sportscaster is how much I appreciate that Newhouse Mafia, knowing that I could pick up the phone and call someone who I've never met before. But the fact that we would have that in common is that tie that binds us, and he's willing to lend me a hand just like I'd be willing to lend him or her a hand. So uh, those are the things that I, I take with me. And certainly, you know, to this day, Bob and Marv are still, in many respects, at the top of their game. But I never tried to model myself after Marv Albert because I never, at that point, thought I wanted to do what Marv did. I kind of stumbled accidentally, happily so, into play-by-play. When I graduated, I wanted to be a sports center anchor because that was 1993 when I got out of college. I'm a lot older than you both. And at that time, sports center was the biggest thing in the world. It was Chris Berman. It was Dan Patrick. It was Keith Oberman. And the list goes on and on. That's what I wanted to do. I got a job in Great Falls, Montana, my first job in TV at KFBB in Great Falls, and was stung with the realization that, wait a minute, if I'm in a TV studio, how do I get to the games? I'm not at games now, and I want to be at games. So my next job took me to Tampa operation, high school sports, college sports, professional sports. I was doing talk shows. I was doing call-in shows. I was doing play-by-play. 
And that's where I started to get the itch. So I never had that luxury or that blessing of having one or two guys where I said, that's who I want to sound like. And maybe that's helped me because all I could do is be me. I, I can't try or pretend to be anyone else. And that's what I tell everybody who I speak to who asks for advice uh, to that end. I say, just find your voice, get the reps. And, and once you get the reps, you'll find out who you are on the air. And hopefully that's fairly similar to who you are off the air. And that's what I try. I don't have the pipes that a lot of these guys do. You guys just talked to Boot Shambi recently. I don't have those kind of golden pipes. But what I can be is me. And no one else could be me except me on the air. And so far, I've been very fortunate that uh, my bosses seem to think that I do a good enough job to keep me employed. And that versatility that you've had throughout your career, and you mentioned originally wanting to be an anchor and working in TV and having the opportunity to do radio stuff and, and all these different things, that versatility, would you say that's the biggest part for young broadcasters in the growth of becoming a broadcaster is not pigeonholing yourself into one specific thing in broadcasting, but being able to do multiple things like you have in your career. hundred percent, Kyle. A hundred. I couldn't put it any better. Uh, it's one thing that I struggled with early in my career because there is that fine line. You feel like, am I a jack of all trades, master of none? And how does that look to a prospective employer? But what I found, and it's going to sound like I'm name dropping here because I am, uh, I was very lucky at a very early age to have an audience with Al Michaels. And I remember calling Al Michaels because, believe it or not, guys, I spent six years as a host at Home Shopping Network. I don't know if there's any other national sportscaster who can lay claim to that. So I wear that with pride now, whereas before I tried to kind of hide that from prospective employers. But the reason I was working at HSN was, A, they were local to where I was here in St. Petersburg, and B, they hired me to be their sports host. So I was traveling around with Monday Night Football back in the year 1999. I got that job. And I was traveling around doing a one-hour show on HSN, but it was a Monday Night Football show. Every week we had a Hall of Famer as a guest. Every week we would... Uh, be live on the field before that Monday night football game. So I got to meet and spend some time with Al Michaels. And I remember asking him, did I basically, pardon my French, did I shit the bed by taking this job at HSN? And he said, you know what, 10 years ago, I would have told you you're crazy, but the walls are coming down more and more. And he was prophetic by saying this. This is 1999 before podcasts existed, before so much of this technology that we now live with existed. But he said, I think the more versatile you could be, the better you are. And I've turned that into a tentpole for speeches that I give to groups and broadcasters and at schools. Uh, I talk about the fact that versatility is value. Versatility doesn't show a weakness versatility is value and it's more valuable than ever because you can do radio you can do tv you can do streaming you can do online you can do podcasts there are so many more outlets for sportscasters to get reps no matter what that rep is than ever before so i was versatile because i didn't really know what i wanted to do in the beginning but now i embrace and covet 
that versatility. I like to tell people I get to scratch two itches because I love hosting uh, sports shows. I get to do that six months out of the year with the Rays. But I also now realize that a decade into calling college basketball games for ESPN, that I love that equally as much, if not more. And I get to do both of those things um, on a regular basis. So uh, being versatile is a key component to being successful in this business, in my opinion. And while you're gaining all that experience and having all these great opportunities for you in the Tampa area, getting to work with HSN, like you talked about, uh, just where was play-by-play for you? Was it something that was still at the top of your list to something you wanted to go down? I first took the job down here for this small local cable station, one of the things that we did was we broadcast games on our channel. They were high school games, but it was throughout the calendar year. So it started with football, then it transitioned into basketball, then into baseball. We did some soccer. We did some volleyball. I mean, we did everything. And I was making it up as I went along. The only play-by-play experience I had up until that point was the summer of my freshman year at Syracuse, I went back up to school to essentially take what amounted to a, a summer class. Now they have a, you can major in sports broadcasting at Newhouse at Syracuse. You couldn't do that when I was there in the, in the 90s. But they had what was called the Syracuse Sportscasting Academy. And it was run by a gentleman named Dave Cohen, who I am now still friends with. He's mostly retired, lives in the Atlanta area, but he spent a long time as a very successful sportscaster. And he ran a week-long sportscasting academy where we would go to Syracuse Chiefs games and do what Boog told you he used to do at Marlins Park. He, uh, we would get on tape recorders with our partners next to us and call a couple innings of a Syracuse Chiefs game. Then we would go to the Carrier Dome and mock up a Syracuse basketball game and do some reps calling that. That was my first and only experience as play-by-play uh, until I got the job down here in Tampa Bay. So I was, like I said, learning on the job. That was exactly what I was doing. The more I did it, the more I enjoyed it. And the more I enjoyed it, the more I realized, I think that I could continue to do this and make a, a living at it, even though I don't have all the necessary pedigree, if you will, because like you guys have a lot more experience than I did coming out of college. So many of my colleagues, the Adam Amins, the Joe Davises, uh, all these guys spent so many years and got so much valuable experience in minor league baseball. And I didn't have that except for a little cup of coffee because contractually my station was able to call some of the Clearwater Phillies games, single A baseball here in Clearwater. So again, I'm talking about maybe in two years I did a half dozen games and that was it compared to hundreds of games if you're working for a couple of years for a minor league team or minor league teams. I think that is invaluable. And again, it goes back to reps. You know, uh, I'm a Malcolm Gladwell fan. I subscribe to the 10,000 hours. I don't know if that's the exact number or not. I know there's been a lot of debate about that, disproving that. But I certainly didn't have the 10,000 hours. I'm working on my 10,000 hours still. Uh, but it's, it, it's worked so far, and I, I still continue to learn and grow 
and take not only advice, but steal from, let alone borrow from my colleagues who are sometimes younger than I am. And obviously other times, you know, in my age range or sometimes older than me. I, I'm learning all the time still. For sports on television, really everyone wants to get to ESPN and have the experience like you've had of calling major college basketball and a lot of other great events. What were some of the first steps you took towards getting your first ESPN play-by-play opportunities? Uh, networking is humongous. I mean, you, it, Kyle brought up versatility, and that's you know at the top of the list. Networking is probably the most cringeworthy of important aspects of this or any job but you have to do it. I was terrible at it when I was younger. I would place a phone call or send a typed letter and wouldn't follow up. If I didn't hear back, oh, they don't like me. Oh, they ignored me. Oh, screw them. But I wouldn't follow up. Networking and building relationships is absolutely critical. And again, just like with the actual art of sportscasting, I'm still learning how to do that. And there are more avenues to do that with text and FaceTime and Zoom calls. What I tell people is you don't know how valuable and how much of an impression you can make if you pick up the phone and make a phone call these days because those things don't happen. I have, I have three young kids. They're 17, 15, and 11. I don't think they've ever picked up the phone and made a phone call. It's all text or FaceTime and that's it or Snapchat, or Instagram, but that's it. The ability where they can hear your voice and tell what those intonations are, um, it, it, it goes so far now. You know, I'm sure there aren't very many people who write handwritten letters anymore, but if you wanted to go that route, I'm sure you would score even more points doing that. Networking is critical. And that was how I got in the door at ESPN. The lady at the time, uh, her name is Lori Orlando. She's now an executive at CBS. She was in charge of hiring talent at ESPN. I come to find out she's a fellow Newhouse grad. I used that connection to get up there and go uh, to a meeting face to face with her, not for a particular job, just to say hello. And uh, I even joke with, uh, in, in some talks that I give, even if you have to lie about it, just make up a reason why you're going to be in a certain city or market where you might want a job just to get there. So in other words, and this happened to me, I'm kind of fast forwarding, but I met with Lori. She kept in touch with me. A year later, I got a call from a guy by the name of Chris Farrow, who at that point was in charge of college basketball scheduling at ESPN. And he said, do you do play by play? And I said, sure, I do. Going back to my story, lie if it's necessary, <laughs> because I really didn't have a ton of play by play experience. So he said, well, send me a demo. I saw your, your demo reel, but I need to see you calling a game. So send me whatever you have. So I made up a game. I, it was USF versus UCF from a year earlier. I got that game. I brought in a buddy of mine who's a basketball coach. He and I mocked up the first half of the USF-UCF game, and that was my demo to Chris Farrow, and he hired me based off that. But if, you, it, it, if the lie is worth telling and it it's not doing harm to anybody, then just saying yes will help you.
and and that's what I mean by that. I I don't want to want to you know promote the fact that we're we're talking about being underhanded in any way, but just getting in the door that way is the most critical piece. And then hopefully, if you have enough talent and enough belief in those talents, that will help you the rest of the way. Because I I was able to you know convince them and then in some ways convince myself that I could do the job that they were hiring before. I didn't want to be exposed. And, you know, sometimes that kind of desperation is the best inspiration to do your best job. Do you remember that first game with ESPN, knowing full well that you kind of fibbed in terms of the play-by-play experience <laughs> you had going in? Do you, do you remember what the teams, what the situation was, what the game was? Oh, God, I wish I had that kind of memory. I don't remember the exact teams, but I remember it was Thanksgiving 11 years ago and I got a call. And the only reason I got a call was because I lived in St. Petersburg. And there was the, at that point, it was called the Old Spice Classic in Orlando at Disney. And Chris Farrell called me and he said, okay, we got two games for you. Are you available? It was on Thanksgiving. Hmm. Of course I said, yes, just say yes. Uh, and I got to call my first two games with Len Elmore. And uh, again, going back to the Marv Alberts and the Bob Cott, Len Elmore was, first of all, he's a New York native. So I've known about Len Elmore my whole life, but Len Elmore was one of the essential voices of March Madness for, for years and years and years. And my first two games on a national scale for ESPN, were going to be with Len Elmore. I, it, it couldn't have been more fortuitous to me. Um, and I'll never forget calling those first two games at halftime of the very first game. One of the executives on site comes out with a card in her hand. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm literally getting pink slipped <laughs> after one half of basketball. And she comes over and she goes, Chris just had me write this down. He said, good job. But he, he wrote some notes for you. And I'm like, oh, my God, what did I do wrong? And all it said on it was, slow down, talk less. And to this day, those are still rules that I try to follow and try to implore upon every prospective sportscaster. You don't have to fill every second with a word. Uh, let it breathe is a big term inside the walls of ESPN that I have bought into You want to hear the roar of the crowd. You want to hear all that, all that noise, because that is what adds color to your telecast. Uh, the fans who are watching at home could see what's happening. You don't have to tell every detail of what's happening in a television broadcast. Um, and of course, being nervous as I was, I was probably yapping at a million miles an hour. And Len Elmore is just too nice to tell me to slow down. So Chris Farrow was the one who told me that. And to this day, slow down, speak less are words to live by for every sportscaster. And even at this point in time now at ESPN, what's the feedback system like? You mentioned getting the feedback for that first game, but are you still getting emails saying we want this, this and this or a good job on this, this and that? What is that feedback system like within ESPN? What ESPN uh, preaches, and I call it the big boy network, uh, because I had to learn once I got there that you're not going to get feedback all the time, if ever, 
unless you're doing something really, really wrong. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and that's happened to me. Uh, there, there have been times where I've gotten calls after a game saying, you know, hey, next time something like this happens, you can't say this, whatever the case may be. Um, ESPN also has what's called Card 99. Card 99 was invented because of a sportscaster or two or three making inappropriate comments on the air, whether they were intended or not. Card 99 is a card that your stage manager would hand to you, which says, earlier I might have said something that offended some people. I am tired. I am sorry for doing that. And, you know, whatever the, <clears throat> the language of that card is, that's card 99. But outside of that, um, the feedback system is a two-way street. So if you do something well, and you want it acknowledged or you just want it critiqued by the higher ups, you have to seek them out and you have to say to the David Seislers of the world or the Linda Schultzes of the world or the Pat Lowry's of the world uh, or the Mike Shipman's of the world who oversees all of basketball at ESPN say, hey, I don't know if you caught any of it. You probably didn't. But I was uh, calling the Kansas game Saturday afternoon and there was this one snippet of time where I wasn't sure how it came off on the air. Could you do me a favor and listen to it? It was at, and at be as specific as you can be. If you do that, you will get immediate feedback on it. They will get back to you much sooner than later, but you can never expect to be handheld throughout your career as you're trying to work your way up that imaginary ladder. Uh, it's just not going to happen. So a lot of times we're all in the weeds. I usually in a normal, regular season would call close to 40 games a year. Once I'm in the weeds, I'm not thinking about feedback unless, listen, unless you do something that's really cool and you remember it and you're like, man, I nailed that. And I, I hope someone saw that. Um, you're just going from game to game to game. It's usually two games a week, sometimes three games a week. Uh, so I have to remind myself to ask for that feedback. Because you don't ask, you don't get. And you can't blame them for not being proactive about giving feedback because they're dealing with a sum total of over 1,300 college basketball games in a handful of months. So, you know, just like you're wishing that you would get some positive feedback or some constructive criticism, there's a hundred other play-by-play guys who are hoping the same thing and might be in, you know, worse scenarios than you are. Maybe they're just starting out and, you know, they feel stuck in their career and they haven't advanced. Those are the guys who are dying for feedback so they can know how to get better. Um, so that's a long answer to a, a very good question, because feedback is something that all of us crave, but it's very, very hard to come by. And a lot of times you can fall back on no news is good news, but, you know, no news doesn't always equate to good news if when your contract runs out, they don't renew your contract because of something you did wrong or weren't doing enough of that they didn't tell you about because you didn't seek out that feedback. 
Something else kind of inside ESPN I was a little curious about was uh, just the package of games that you receive. I know you've called a lot of Big 12 games earlier in your time there, a lot of the SEC network, a lot of the SEC games. Just Does that kind of vary contract to contract, what assignments you're going to have or what leagues you're going to cover? How does all that work? Uh, you know what? It's not really contract to contract. Um, most contracts are two to three years. Um, I remember when I got... Uh, a, a heads up text from a producer friend of mine who had been producing a number of big 12 games saying, Hey buddy, got some good news for you. And I'm like, what? He's like, I think we might be working together this coming season. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? I haven't heard from anybody. And he's like, well, you'll hear from somebody soon enough. And I got a call from my boss a week later saying, so we think we're going to put you on big 12 basketball this year. I had spent the previous four years calling Missouri Valley Conference basketball, and that was phenomenal because I lucked out and was covering Wichita State during their run to the Final Four, the undefeated season, Fred Van Vliet, Ron Baker. It was amazing. And I was literally, I mean, the Missouri Valley Conference is great basketball, but at that time, in the beginning, it was Wichita State and Creighton and everybody else. Then Creighton left, and it was Wichita State and Northern Iowa and everybody else. Now, all of a sudden, they've kind of widened their their talent pool a little bit, and there's a number of good teams in the Valley. But when I was doing it, it was every Saturday I was in Wichita calling <laughs> games inside Coke Arena, and that place is bananas. It is awesome. We were talking before uh, about Fog Allen, and that is number one on my list of places to call a basketball game, but Coke Arena in Wichita is not far behind. 10,000 seats, in a dome they're all on top of you they are as loud and as smart as any basketball fans i've ever come across so coming from the valley four years feels like a long time and i had people at the end of the season during postseason play you know you get a couple of postseason conference tournaments and you're like oh that's a feather in my cap okay you know they're rewarding me for my efforts that's nice after four years i had people telling me like I think it's time. I, I think you need to move on. And I'm like, well, it's not my call. You know, I could ask for an assignment, but you don't get what you ask for necessarily. You know, you could put it out there, but you're not going to be guaranteed anything. So to get that call was really gratifying because it did work that way. It showed that they were watching not only my season, but the trajectory of my career. And if there's one thing I could say about ESPN as massive a company as it is, they still do make their every effort to treat you like a person and not like an employee. And as long as you show, going back to what we were talking about, seeking feedback, as long as you show that you really do care about not only the product you're putting out on the air, but being a good company guy and advancing your career at the same time, then they'll look out for that. They'll, they'll ask you every year, I have a conversation with David Seisler, and he says, so what do you want to do? What's what's on your bucket list? What are you shooting for? And the latest time, I, latest couple of things I said to him, this was before last season, was I need to call a game in Madison Square Garden because I still haven't done that yet. And it's tough, you know, because I'm calling Big 12 basketball. I'm not calling Big East basketball. ESPN doesn't ha even have the Big East contract. So those games are fewer and farther between for someone like me 
to call a game at MSG. And the games that are at MSG, the Dukes, the so those are taken. You know, Dan Schulman's got those games. <laughs> uh, but you know what? I know that David Seisler has that in the back of his mind. You know, and if that situation arises, he's going to say, you know what? I remember that conversation with Hollenberg. I'm going to give him this game at MSG because he said he wanted it. And again, that that shows that speaking up, at, whether it's speaking up for yourself, for your career or for feedback, um, it, it's really critical because no one, even if you have an agent and I don't, even if you have an agent, no one's going to look out for you more than you will look out for you. And uh, and that's that's a good lesson and a good example of a lesson. Let's dive into the preparation. Say you've got a Saturday game at Foghallen Fieldhouse between Kansas and, say, Oklahoma State. What's your uh, time like getting prepared for that ball game? And then what's important for you to put on your chart to get ready uh, to go in and call the game? Well, I, I, I have my here. You probably scratch it. You probably won't be able to read anything. But here's what uh, my boards look like. I'm very old school. I don't print anything out on a computer. I learn from writing. I memorize from writing. So I still, I learned this at the Syracuse Sportscasting Academy. I still put my boards together the same way that Dave Cohen taught me as a freshman in, uh, in college back in 1990, that was. So we're talking about, what, 30 years, and I'm still making my boards the same way for a basketball game. Uh, it's, it gets a lot, lot easier when you're covering the same teams not only in one season, but year on year. So now I just put this board for Kansas together because I just found out that I'm calling a Kansas game next week and I have some time on my hands. So earlier this morning, I put together my board and I'll fill it in as time gets closer. But I know a lot of these players and I certainly know Bill Self. So a lot of that stuff is just kind of repopulating in my head and putting it back on the, on the Manila folder that I use. I also am a pack rat, and I save all my boards from previous seasons, so I can use those as a reference. I can go back and look at what I had written down for Kansas the year before and kind of advance that storyline or advance that statistic to this year and how it relates to this season. Um, I like to keep track of score myself. Um, in this day and age, a lot of play-by-play -play guys rely on their stats guy next to them to do that. But I like to keep a running score myself and have my stats guy keep me honest in case I do make a mistake. So that's something that I leave a column for next to the names and the numbers. Um, I also like to track games uh, from earlier in the season that the players have played well in. If a guy had a career high or had a double-double, I'll write that in the third column. And the fourth column for me is all human interest. So it's all the you know, not only basketball wise, but like, you know, if he was the Gatorade player of the year in high school, things like McDonald's All-American, things like that, but also human interest stories, you know, has a brother who also plays. His dad was a scholarship player, uh, you know, for so-and-so, things like that, things to humanize these student athletes to tell those stories. So those are my four columns that I'm always populating and filling out and it, it i write small so i could fill a lot of stuff in but at the same time mike Tarico, another newhouse mafia guy once told me he follows the 10 percent rule and the 10 percent rule is simple 
whatever you have on your boards for any particular game, if you use 10% of that, you know you've had a good call. Because at the end of the day, it's not what's on the board that's going to make for a great broadcast. It's the game you're watching. It's the game that's unfolding in front of you. That's what makes a great broadcast. I, I've called great games that have been crappy games. And I don't remember any of those games. I remember the exciting games, the buzzer beaters, the two heavyweights going toe-to-toe, whatever the case may be. Not what's on the board makes that a special moment. It's documenting the game that makes it special. So if I get to 10% of what I've had on these boards, and especially in that far right column, that like I call it the human interest column, then I know that something good must have happened in this game to document that I didn't have time to use that other 90%. All of this information just familiarizes myself with the teams so that I go in with a real comfort level knowing that I don't necessarily have to see the guy, make the play, and then look down, find his number, and try and spew off some interesting anecdote or statistic about that guy. So I make sure in the run-up, once I get these boards done, I spend a couple of hours at least um, for the last probably three days leading up to a game. And again, writing is my methodology. For someone else, it might be something different. Marv Albert used to talk about in his book, I'd love to, but I have a game. He used to talk about the fact that he would put on index cards names and numbers of the players he was covering that night and put them all around his hotel room. So everywhere he looked, he'd see a player's name and number, and that's how it soaked into him. For me, I just get out a sheet of paper, and I just start writing that roster down. Zero, Marcus Garrett. Two, Christian Brown. You know, and just keep... Write it down, the more I memorize it. And believe it or not, in... A regular season, I'm on a plane so much that an airplane is basically like my office. That's pretty much all I'm doing on my flight. I'm just, people must think I'm like Rain Man. I'm just writing the same thing down over and over and over again until I have the names and numbers committed to memory. Once I feel comfortable with that, then I'll try to have a couple of things, you know, in my basket, so to speak, in my toolbox that I could go to right off the bat. So when Marcus Garrett scores his first basket of the game, I could say Marcus Garrett, last year's National Defensive Player of the Year, showing that he's improved on the offensive end as well. You know, have a, a couple of nuggets because you're certainly not going to have all that information right at your instant recall. So um, that's, you know, a snapshot of how I would prepare in the run-up to a game. And then, of course, you go to shoot-arounds, you talk to coaches, building those relationships – is critical and it's crucial because now, as opposed to maybe five years ago, Bill Self knows me. You know, we're on a first name basis. And all of these guys are super nice. They're never going to dismiss me. But five years ago, he might not have told me with as much detail some of the things that I'm asking about as opposed to this week when I call him and we get on a Zoom call and he sees that it's me and he's just a little more comfortable, a little more at ease. And I found that sports information directors, assistant coaches are critical to build relationships because they have more time to spend with you than a, a head coach would. 
and then talk to the players. Don't be shy about bothering anybody. You know, the worst thing that anybody could say if you ask them to have a conversation is no. And then you just move on to the next person who could be important. So there, you know, you could go down a rabbit hole and I encourage everyone to do so because I'm a research hound and I love doing this. It's as fun to me as calling a game, but becoming friendly with the local sports writers, following them on Twitter and reading up on as much as you can. So you become an expert, even though you're kind of parachuting in to a certain game where, you know, I might only have this team once or twice in a season. Are the fans going to buy what I'm trying to give them during a game? Are they going to feel like, oh, who's this idiot? I know more about my team than he does. So that's all the more incentive to really be buttoned up with the information that you gather from your notes, from the internet, from talking to coaches and players and the writers to have all of that at your disposal in front of you and in your head so that you don't give any fan the opportunity to go on Twitter and try and blow you up, even though you know it's going to happen one time or another. <laughs> and what what kind of questions do you have prepared for when you get on that Zoom call with Coach Self or, or you see him before a game? I, I usually, what I do is I usually like to have structured questions, but then once the conversation happens, keep it conversational, but know that you have that structure in case you need it. How do you attack the, the shoot-around conversations? Uh, I'm fairly similar uh, to that, Kyle. I think um, I, I think what you're referring to is really journalism 101. You have to be a good listener. And what I have learned and found to be most effective is the dumbest questions get the best answers. Um, if there's a pet peeve of mine, it's the sideline reporter who starts – every question with 20 seconds of regurgitating their stats. You went five or six from the field and scored 15 points, and that was your career high. How do you feel about that? Instead, you just say, how did that feel to have that game? More conversational. You don't have to prove you're the smartest person in the room, and you are not the star of that interview. The player or the coach is who everyone's tuning in to listen to. So um, that's going off on a tangent a little bit, but I certainly have, you know, a handful of questions that I really want to know about. A lot of times it'll be injuries or about the team they're facing. Um, and then again, the more personal you can get with a coach, uh, they could be guarded or they could be forthcoming. And, and that's just up to the mood they're in or the time they have to give you. But being a good listener is critical because I don't ever want to feel like I'm complicit in an interview. I if, if I ask Bill Self something about an NCAA or FBI investigation, follow, well, you know, you don't say why. Again, that's what I mean about a dumb question. I might know the answer already, but the viewer doesn't want me to answer that question. The viewer wants the subject to answer the question. So asking why might sound dumb coming out of your mouth because you're like, well, I know why, but you want them to say it and put it in their own words. That's why at ESPN you'll see so many sideline reporters ask similar questions couched in very similar words. It could get a little bit bothersome if too many of them are asking the same questions all the time, but the good ones know how to do it with a little bit of nuance. 
but really all you're asking these athletes or these coaches in the immediate aftermath of a game is how does it feel? Mm -hmm. Because we're all sports fans. Mm -hmm. I can't feel the way that Boogie Ellis felt when he hit a half-court buzzer beater in Sioux Falls last week, but Boogie Ellis knows how it feels. So how does it feel? What's it like? These are the descriptive questions that you're, you have to get descriptive answers. Because if you ask yes or no questions, sometimes if your interview subject is a little ornery for one reason or another, or maybe they're just shy or uncomfortable in front of the camera or haven't done a lot of these interviews, they're 18, 19 year old kids. Sometimes they'll give you a one word answer and then you're screwed because then you're backpedaling and you're trying to recover and you don't have your next question already prepared because you were waiting for their answer first. So you're setting yourself up for a tough interview if you give them the opportunity to answer in a one word fashion. But by asking them open-ended questions like why, they're never gonna answer because. <laughs> they're gonna give you an answer. And the best times I think are when you see an athlete or a coach pause for a second and think about it before they say what they're gonna say. Because that means they're really listening to what you're asking and they're trying to think of the most descriptive answer to give you. And that's a win for everybody. And I want to ask about a technical aspect of play-by-play -play and the energy for a big moment or a big call. And you talked about some critique that you got early in your career about maybe talking too much. And, you know, that could be a crutch for announcers at times is talking through the big moment on television when the pictures can tell the story. How do you balance where you want your energy and how many words you use in those types of moments? Well, because I... Uh as we talked about earlier, because I, you know, I'm just being honest with myself because I don't have those golden pipes that so many of my colleagues do. I think my, my passion kind of tips the scales back in my favor or at least balances those scales. So I feel like I can hang in a big moment and on a big stage or between two teams in a big game. So um, being able to edit yourself while that moment is happening is a very tangible learned skill. There were times 10 years ago, at eight years ago, when I was calling big games, but it was for smaller schools, mid-majors, things like that, that didn't necessarily have national cachet, but you know for those schools, they were huge games. And I would, on a card in front of me at the top of, the, of my table, I would write things like layout, you know, to remind myself if a big moment happened. And then, again, just like anything else, Kyle, the more you do it and the more you purposely stop talking, it, it almost sounds like an oxymoron. You are actively not talking. I have to remind myself, man, Dan Dockich and I have been talking this entire time and there's been five trips down the floor. Now, what we're, what Dan's saying is hysterical and I'm not <laughs> going to shut him up. This is, this is gold. But when he's done, I'm done. I'm just going to let, let, let them play basketball for 10, maybe 15 seconds, maybe an entire one or two possessions just to balance it out a little bit. Just to, just to let the viewer 
exhale and lean back. You know, there's a big buzz term in, in broadcasting over the last, it probably became popular maybe like five years ago. It's all leaning in. Things like, yeah, I'm really going to lean into that idea. Well, that whole concept started with television. Television is by its nature a passive activity. You're sitting on your couch, you're laying in your bed, you're not really doing anything except watching. But when a big moment happens, you want that person watching to lean in, not only to see what's going on, but to hear what you're saying, documenting that, that moment. So sometimes you want to punctuate at the, the start of the moment, then you lay out and then you bookend it with something critical at the back end. So I've, I've called a number on it. I can't count exactly how many buzzer beaters I've called, but it's a small amount. I mean, not everybody gets one, let alone a half dozen, but maybe I've called four or five. And the one that's most memorable to me was a handful of years ago. I was with Lafonso Ellis and it was the NIT quarterfinals and it was old dominion and Murray state. And the winner went to Madison square garden. And that's a, big deal for these small schools and it was a buzzer beater and I, I'll never forget everything that we have talked about in our conversation right now everything that that you want to happen all came to fruition at that moment so not for play-by-play -play guys but more for analysts the best thing an analyst can do is forecast right Tony Romo does it better than anybody oh you want to look out for this Oh, this might happen when you see this. That's gold for an analyst. Timeout was called. Old Dominion was down two with the ball and about 10 seconds left, let's say. Coming out of that timeout, I did what I was supposed to do. I teed up my analyst to make him look smart. And I said, what do you think, Fonz, in this situation? What's Jeff Jones looking for? And Fonz nailed it because he's the best. And he said, oh, you know, I think uh, uh, I'm trying. His name was Trey. Oh, I'm drawing a blank on his last name. I'll remember it tomorrow and I'll text <laughs> you. Again. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think you got to get the ball in the hands of Trey and he's got to make a play and ball gets inbounds. All of a sudden, Trey gets the ball from like 30 feet away. And all I said was. Shots up. And I remember in my head saying, just shut up. Don't say anything because you will ruin the. There is nothing I could have said when that ball was left, left his hands that would have made that moment any more dramatic than what you're watching and hearing on TV. He hits the shot and Fonz goes, Oh, and again, that's almost like Nat sound. That's amazing to me because that's a real visceral reaction from a guy who played a dozen years in the NBA. And he's that hyped up about that moment. So he's going, Oh, I'm laying out. And then what felt like five years was probably about 10 seconds of watching ODU celebrate on the floor everyone's mobbing Trey and I say he hits the shot on a wing and a prayer and I don't know where that came from because I couldn't have scripted that 
because I didn't know he was going to hit it on the wing. And I didn't know it was going to be a prayer of a jump shot, but it just came to mind. And I remember being interviewed after that game and they asked me about that. And I said, in the past, especially for big games like a conference championship or something like that, where something was on the line at halftime of that game, I would write down two endings. So if UConn wins the game or if Syracuse wins the game, I have two things scripted because I thought that's what Jim Nance must do at the end of every Final Four and at the end of every Masters. He knows exactly what he's saying. And he probably does, but he doesn't necessarily have it written down. I figured, I don't want to blow this. I don't want to mumble. I don't want to stutter. So I had it written down. And one of my bosses called me on it. She goes, hey, you had a great call the other night. I kind of got the feeling like you were reading something at the end. And I was like, you know what? I was. So from that moment on, I stopped doing that. And it paid off. And it's preparation. And it's getting lost in the moment. And it's being a fan as much. is knowing that whatever you say in the instant that is happening is not going to be impactful enough for you to talk over a buzzer beater or a game-winning touchdown or a walk-off home run. Just lay out and let the moment have its moment, and then you punctuate it at the end. And I've been guilty of it a couple of times. Sometimes it's not even words. Sometimes I'll say, oh, my gosh, or he did it, or something like that. But after I do that, I go, okay, shut it down. Even if you have to count yourself in the in your head, like five seconds, just don't say anything for five seconds. And five seconds, as you guys know, goes by like that on TV. So maybe it's 10 seconds, you know? And maybe you just wait until your analyst says something. Or maybe the next words out of your mouth after you lay out isn't a comment, but a question. Because at the end of the day, we all have big egos, but one of the number one jobs, one of the top jobs of a play-by-play guy is make the guy sitting next to you look smart. Because he's the analyst. You're not the analyst. So maybe my next question, my next comment wouldn't be a comment. It would be a question. What did you think, Fonz? And let him punctuate that moment. And if there's any feedback I get from the broadcast partners I work with, and I've worked with 50 some odd <laughs> analysts through my years, they appreciate the fact that I ask them questions because not a lot of play-by-play guys do that. And again, it's going back to what we said earlier, those dumb questions. You know, you talk about a zipper cut, you talk about a UCLA cut, you talk about a stagger screen. These are all kind of inside basketball things that I've learned through the years, but never take for granted that the viewer at home might not know what they are. Sometimes the analyst wouldn't think about that. So if they say something like that, or even something even more basic, you know, oh, they're in a 2-3 zone, I would say, why are they in a 2-3 zone? And let the analyst explain. Well, you know, this is a really good shooting team, and they're not that big, so they're going to pack it in in the 2-3 zone, 2-3 zones, force you to shoot from outside, and they're going to make make you beat you from outside. You know, let the analyst shine. Ask those questions in-game, just like we were talking about with interviews before and after a game. 
We know we're going a little bit over the hour, but we're really enjoying this, Rich. So we have just a couple more for you <laughs> as you made it past the hour mark. Um, with your work with the Tampa Bay Rays, getting to be the pregame host, postgame host for television, just what do you like about TV hosting in that kind of format? And then how much are you scripting? How much are you looking off of a teleprompter? How much is ad-libbed in those settings? Uh, I would say, Roger, it's 50-50 as far as ad-lib and scripting. A lot more scripting uh, when you're hosting a show versus play-by-play, as you would imagine. Um, but uh, the thing I like the most about it is being a ringleader, if if that's the right term. And I use that somewhat loosely because I've had the great fortune for the last seven years of working alongside two guys who I call and consider two of my closest friends in Arrestes Estrada and Doug Wechter. And it's, we have fun on the air. And it's my job to rein them in when they're talking too much, to ask the right questions, to get the answers that are pertinent to that game or that moment that we're talking about, but also to create an atmosphere on set that I know will be entertaining and educational for the fans. Uh, I'm a huge, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a huge research guy. So I love stats. I love finding nuggets that I think add color to a particular moment or a particular game that's either coming up or just happened. I love putting things in instant perspective in a post game show. Um, so all of that stuff would be written down. Um, but any of the other stuff, it's it's really important to have the ability to speak extemporaneously. And uh, this kind of goes back to, you know, I spent six years at HSN as their sports host, and that was all 24 hours, seven days a week, live without a net. There's no script. There's no teleprompter. You were talking off the cuff the entire time. So that was, in hindsight, a great education for me to be able to kind of build up those type of broadcasting muscles. And those are things that I still use. Uh, but the most fun about that is kind of the freedom to be that ringleader and kind of take the show. You know, you have a rundown from your producer, obviously, but to take the show where you want it to go tonally and also, you know, topically at the same time. My last one, then we'll have Kyle get one more. Uh, we know you like to eat when you go on the road for your college basketball trips, <laughs> yeah. and uh, it's always fun to follow on Instagram. I know you're going to have a game. It's like, all right, where'd Rich go to eat this morning? You know, for a good breakfast or something. Any of your favorite spots in the towns that Kyle and I work in the most? Gainesville, Tuscaloosa, or Knoxville? Okay, so, well, those are I, – I love the SEC. So uh, I have too many that uh, would take up too much time to mention. I'll give you a couple. Um First of all, Knoxville was the first, was it the first place? No, Knoxville was the second place I was ever able to eat at Tupelo Honey. I'm mm -hmm. a huge Tupelo Honey fan. If you've never been, they're expanding their empire in the south, so maybe one will open up. The original one is in Asheville, North Carolina, but they have one in, in Knoxville. Uh, that's tremendous for breakfast. Most of mine are breakfast places because obviously I'm doing games at night, so I don't really get good dinners all the time. Uh, in Gainesville, I am partial to the Flying Biscuit. Uh, it, that also was um, an, an original place in Atlanta, and then they franchised out. So lucky for Gainesville, 
Gainesville that they went all the way out to the state of Florida and they're not just in Georgia anymore, but I'm a huge fan of uh, Flying Biscuit. The creamy, dreamy grits are the best and they're some of my favorite biscuits. And Tuscaloosa, I mean, you can't go wrong with the Rammer Jammer, uh, <laughs> but I do love, um, I do love uh, the Waysider, mm-hmm. right? The Waysider, the Waysider yep. Just, yeah, it's just off the road, uh, just down the road from campus. Very small little red house, if I remember correctly. Um, so I'm a big fan of that. And uh, those are the three that come to mind for those particular cities. But the, the great thing about traveling around is that every college town and every major city always has at least one or two go-to places. And I'm hell-bound determined to find those places and stuff my face when I'm there. And you mentioned, this will be my final one, you mentioned Kansas is probably your favorite spot to call a game. Any other venues that you get really amped up for uh, in co- around college basketball? Uh, yeah, I mentioned Coke Arena in Wichita is dynamite. Um, there are certainly a couple that are on my wish list. I, I'd love to call a game at Hinkle Fieldhouse. Um, that, you know, calling games, as I did a, a week or so ago, at the crossover classic with Dan Dockage and Sioux Falls, they built the Sanford Pentagon in Sioux Falls to almost feel like Hinkle Fieldhouse, even though it's only seven years old. So that gave me uh, a renewed desire to get to Hinkle Fieldhouse and call a Butler game from there. Um, that is one of the places that certainly comes to mind. I'd love to go to Assembly Hall and call a game at Indiana. Never been there uh, because I haven't done very many uh, Big Ten games. Um, and Rupp Arena has been very good to me. I mean, I've called a, a, a ton of Kentucky games. And although the atmosphere um, physically is, and a lot of people, you know, I, I hope Big Blue Nation's not watching because they'll crush me for saying this, but the building itself isn't special. There, mm-hmm. There's nothing really special about it. But how many other schools will sell out a 22,000 seat arena game in, game out? Kentucky's the only one that can do that. Uh, so because of that atmosphere, because of Big Blue Nation, that's certainly near the top of my list. And I was very lucky that I got to call a handful of games at Cameron Indoor. And that, for the exact opposite reason, is what makes Cameron Indoor so special, is you're up in the crow's nest, although I, I've heard that they've moved the announcers. Uh, but it, you used to be up in a crow's nest. You would literally have to climb this little wrought iron ladder and duck your head and sit down all bunched up and you weren't even at center court, but then you look down and it's almost like you're calling a game in a freaking library. It is that cool. The coolest thing is being in Cameron indoor when the crazies aren't there because you realize how gorgeous this gym is lacquered wood, brass knobs and handles and railings. I mean, it really feels like a collegiate atmosphere. And then you pack it in with however many thousand Cameron crazies and it takes on a whole new feeling and a whole new sensibility. And that's beat all. Well, we look forward to the day when you're able to go back to places like Cameron Indoor Stadium, Allen Fieldhouse, Rupp Arena, and get back to college basketball as it should be. But for now, we look forward, Rich, to your upcoming telecast on ESPN, and we just certainly thank you for all the time you've given us today. This has been a real treat to hear your insights on the business, and we thank you for joining us. Guys, it flew by. I can't, we should call this the Broadcaster Two Hours. It's got to go, too. Maybe next time. Thanks Absolutely. for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks, Rich.
All right, our thanks to Rich Hollenberg, and thank you for watching this episode of Broadcaster Hour.